0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Acts chapter 17
1: verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, "'May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, "'for you bring some strange things to our ears. "'We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. "'Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there "'would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. "'So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "'Men of Athens, I perceive perceive that in every way you are very religious.' And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, uh, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his, his offspring. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and the others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well,
0: Father, we love you and we praise you. And we're so thankful for your word. Uh, We're so thankful Um, that you have made yourself known to us and that in your kindness and in your grace, um, you have given us yourself, you've given us your son, you've given us your word. Father, we pray this evening now that you would use uh, this time to uh, elevate yourself, um, to help us understand you uh, more fully and more clearly and uh, to bring us joy uh, that comes through worshiping and knowing you. We love you. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this evening is a torch night, and unfortunately, that does not mean we are going to light torches and warm this room up. Uh, that would be nice. I've been in this building freezing for a few hours now. Um, torches, if you have a child uh, from fourth to sixth grade uh, in those er- uh, era stage of life, I guess, we have Jordan and Debbie and Cedric here. Um, you can send them with them. What they're going to do is study the word in a more uh, age-appropriate way, I guess you'd say. Study our text this evening and learn. Um, and so uh, let's just go ahead and let them go and trickle on out and we will be doing this it's about once a month is it once a month or every three weeks every three weeks we'll have torch that is up and running again so praise God uh COVID can uh kick us but it can't keep us down forever amen well that was impressive that was a goodness I don't know if I should point out that or not but um anyway good afternoon we're really glad you are here let's let them get on out Cedric will bring up the caboose uh, like Clint mentioned, uh, he is one of five pastors here at Christ Church. And my name's Kyle. If I haven't met you yet, um, I would love to meet you after um, this service. What a joy it is to gather in the house of the Lord, to open his word together, to sing and to praise. I love coming to this place on Sunday afternoons. Um, if you've not been here with us over the last few months, it will help you to know that we have been in the book of Acts. We're following Paul as the gospel is moving further and further from the Jewish nation, um, from Jewish worship to the Gentiles, to people who uh, do not know the God of Israel. And last week we saw how Paul had escaped Berea by night to avoid a mob uh, beating him up, basically. So we were in Thessalonica. Uh, 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 Peter was pre- or Paul was preaching, sharing the gospel. Uh, that made a lot of people mad, so they ran him out of the city. Heard he was doing well in Berea, where people were examining the scriptures, seeking to know what's true and right. And so those uh, men, that mob from Thessalonica, actually came and pushed him out of Berea into Athens, which is where we'll be uh, this evening. This week, we're going to see how Paul's plan to hide out for a day or two um, turned into an opportunity, another opportunity for him to preach uh, before a large council yet again in another large city. The culture of this city was inundated with idol worship. Paul could not stand by idly, though, huh? And watch that happen. Culture's a funny thing. I was just trying to think about that this week. Do you guys remember, do you remember Pokemon Go? Do you remember when that happened? That was so weird. (laughs) Uh, but I mean what's weird to me was actually pretty cool, because it brought people together from all walks of life, just people you'd never think would hang out, and they'd be like in cemeteries, or bakeries or people's backyards, and they'd be catching these like digital, fictional creatures. Um, that's so weird. I'm not exempt from strange associations myself. I'm one of those people that says that they like baseball. Anyone in here say they like, yeah, so, I mean, I love it. I got so many of the responses I thought I was going to get, um, lots of responses. Like the first and, and most common response to that is kind of like a, are you kidding me? How could you watch baseball? It's so boring. It's just nine men standing there doing nothing for hours. Uh, some, however, will immediately say, oh, what's your favorite team? And they'll start talking about their favorite team. Some. If you're very unlucky, we'll say, oh, and they'll just go off on statistics and they'll start talking about their favorite teammate and how that's gonna make it, uh, their their team's gonna go all the way this year because of this, this, and this. Um, Culture's crazy. It's crazy how it binds us together. So when I say that I love baseball, really what I mean is that I love when I played baseball as a kid and I love now coaching my son to play baseball. And every once in a while, every year, I watch the World Series. And um, if you invite me to an Isotopes game, I will most likely go. Uh, I love spending tons of money on kind of food that's bad for you. And we'll leave with blue tongues because blue cotton candy is the best cotton candy. Uh, So why am I saying all this? What's the point? Did I get an amen for that? We gotta keep that rolling tonight. I want some more amen. Another amen for cotton candy? We need to change our amens, but I like the amens. Um, So why am I saying all this? What's the whole point? What am I getting at? The point is that it's possible to enjoy something without really knowing or caring about the true source of that enjoyment. Tons of little kids got really excited about Pokemon Go when they saw their middle-aged moms and dads go nuts about the apps, right? Everybody was all of a sudden into Pokemon and and Pokemon hadn't, hadn't been around for a while. You don't need to follow baseball closely to benefit from the plethora of simple joys that it provides to our society. We do this with God every day, Christians and non-Christians alike. The Bible says that every good gift that we experience on this planet comes from God, but rarely do we take the time to trace that good gift to the giver. We enjoy it, and then we move on to the next thing. The pleasure, uh, this pleasure-seeking endeavor will cost you very little when it comes to Pokemon, right, and baseball. So enjoy your lemonade, enjoy your hot dogs, enjoy your, uh, I don't know, digital Pikachus. But when it comes to the God of the universe, ignoring the source can, can cost you greatly. For the believer, it costs you joy and contentment in this life. If you watch Paul's ministry through Acts and then you, you read the letters that he wrote back to these churches, he's never in a very good situation. We just heard how the mob chased him out of Thessalonica. He thought he was going to die, yet, yet he has the clarity of mind to share the gospel with the people in this new city. He has joy and contentment in Christ. And if you're not a believer, and if you don't trust in the resurrected Christ, it costs you an eternity separated from the source of all good that is in this universe. Often, people will say, why can't we pick and choose what we enjoy? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that um, I enjoy, uh, I don't know, self-love, and you can enjoy religion and piety, he can enjoy his career? What's the point? Why does it, what does it matter? Why do we all have to know the source or believe in your religion uh, Acts, our, 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 um, our passage this evening in, in, in chapter 17, verse 30, Paul says this, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Lacking knowledge of the true God and his intention for the world and for you is like trying to follow the rules of a game that does not exist. It doesn't make sense. You never understand the point. Paul preaches to the Athenians that only through faith and repentance in Christ does the pursuit of pleasure, piety, philosophy, career, and so on make sense. What you know and believe to be true about God really does matter. And this is the angle Paul chooses to use after walking the streets of Athens for just a few days. He sees many indulging every, every worldly pleasure, many disciplining their bodies and disciplining their minds, all of them worshiping idols and all without a knowledge of the one true God who created them and loves them and sustains them and is worthy of their praise. So, we'll look at the text this evening using three headings to make it easier uh, uh, one, the setting, two, the sermon and three, the summons. It was really hard to come up with that last one. Uh, the summons, okay, so what he's calling us to. So let's just get into it. Let's look at the setting. So in some ways, this stay in Athens is very similar to Paul's other encounters in the Greco-Roman world. Very similar to what we've already heard over and over again uh, in Acts. He goes, preaches at a synagogue. He also speaks to the Gentiles of the city. Then he's brought before a main council of the city and gives an address. He preaches Jesus and the resurrection. Most of the people reject him, but some believe. Paul has a formula for sure, but there's a lot of ways that this encounter does not fall into the normal formula for Acts. First, he didn't plan on being in Athens, right? We just talked about it. Last week, we saw how the men of Thessalonica ran him out and he escaped by night to Athens. And not only that, but Paul didn't really plan to be there and he didn't plan to preach there. He was waiting for Timothy and Silas Uh, and to join him so he could regroup and continue on his journey, most likely to Corinth. That's where they go next. But Paul's short stay in Athens was disturbing to him. Around every corner was idol worship. As Paul walked the streets, he saw statue after statue, temple after temple, and person after person bowing and paying alms to false gods. No matter if it takes the form of an actual statue that we put on a shelf and worship, or if it takes the form of loving self, or loving others, or loving pleasure, or whatever, all worship that is not directed to the one true God of the universe is idol worship. Paul saw this and and, and the scripture says he was provoked. It says that in verse 16. The word provoked um, and the reaction is very similar uh, to the words and the reactions that, that were in the Old Testament when God saw Israel again and again go after false gods. God was provoked. He, he didn't necessarily send lightning bolts in anger and just lash out immediately but just growing disdain for false worship and what it was doing to his people and what is displaying to the world grew within him. And uh, eventually he would send a prophet or a judge or somebody to speak to Israel and say, you're missing it. And that's the same thing that's happening in Paul as he's walking around this city. He is provoked, he's stirred, he is is seeing that all the idol worship is leading people astray and and, and in his uh, conviction, he cannot be silent. Everyone in that city had picked pieces of reality and chose to worship them instead of the one who set that reality in the heavens and established the foundations of the earth. Bear with me for another baseball analogy. It's like an Amazonian tribesperson, tribesmen, tribeswomen, in the jungle finding a baseball. Okay, so they don't have any context. They just found a baseball in the jungle. They can learn a lot about the ball by holding it by looking at it, by taking it apart, examining its materials. They can come to true conclusions like the ball is small, it's covered in leather, it can be thrown, but it really hurts if you try to catch it because it's hard. Though these are all true about the ball, these truths are also deceitful because they're incomplete. Examining a baseball gives you very little insight into the game of baseball. Pleasure, joy, discipline, love, kindness, sexuality, and so on are all means that are incomplete unless they find their end in Christ, in worship, in giving God the glory he deserves for being who he is. In verse 17 and 18, we're introduced to the people that Paul is encountering. Like usual, you have the Jews um, in the synagogue, and you have some devout People, it says, usually most likely a, uh, a group of Gentiles who have kind of begun to worship the Jewish God. Uh, but there, in Athens, we encounter a few new characters. It's the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans followed a philosophy that maximized pleasure and minimized a deity that cared. So their their goal in life was just satisfy yourself. Just do what you want. There's no there's no, it doesn't matter, there's nobody watching, there's no one who cares, so satisfy yourself on this earth while you can. They picked up the proverbial baseball in the jungle and discovered pleasure. So they feasted on life, they feasted on each other, but they didn't understand what pleasure was for. The Stoics acknowledged a force that was uncontrollable and outside of them. And an and understanding that they realize that there is so much in this universe and in this life that they can't control. This, this life happens and it's difficult. So because they were out of control out there, they sought to control in here. They're super self-controlled. They're, they're disciplined. They, they, they kind of put pleasure away from themselves and pursued what they viewed to be right and good and virtuous. They had picked up the proverbial baseball in the jungle and discovered self-control and piety but didn't understand the purpose. Athens and the world as a whole picked up the ball and discovered an innate innate desire to worship, to love, to be loved. But apart from God himself, we don't understand the purpose of that. So we toss these truths around until we break them or until they break us. We abuse them until the beauty is gone and we move on to consume something else. The world's always been like this. I just lost my place. Not only found it was Paul met with a different type of person, but Athens had a different type of culture. Paul walked into the city and was smack dab in the center of academia of the world of the time. This was the home of Socrates and Plato, And though its glory was fading by this time, Athens was still the Ivy League of cities. Verse 21 indicates the people of the city loved new ideas and new gods, and the Areopagus was a place where new deities were actually decided upon. That's kind of why they often brought people there. They were gonna decide, is this God real? We heard something new. He's talking about something we've never heard. Okay, if he's real, Let's build a temple, let's start worship. That's where this place, that's where it was decided. So um, if one was deemed to be a true God, a temple was built, worship began. The city was filled with religion and idols, but void of true knowledge. It was filled with pleasure, but void of joy. It was filled with piety, but it was graceless, filled with lust, but lacked true love. Any good gift given to us from God left in the hands of humanity too long, it rots and it erodes. We examine it, we pick it up, we pick it apart and cling to incomplete truths that make us the center of worship. Pleasure, the chief end of man and avoiding suffering, the goal of life. But we were created to know God, to worship him and to image him, to love him and be loved by him, to know ourselves, truly and rightly, according to what God has declared, not according to what we discover on our own in a broken and fallen world. And though this account was written thousands of years ago, people have not changed that much at all. Like Nathan mentioned last week, the world's upside down, yet it's still trying to make sense of things. We want to think that that current politics and policies and and progress are all new, but the world has always raged. It has always sought perspective and clarity, unaware that it is upside down. It seeks answers only to uncover more questions, constantly frustrated, exhausted, trying to bring hope and peace. So more temples are built, more idols are erected, but nothing changes, nothing lasts. And we as Christians, that's maybe how the world is viewing these things, but we as Christians are not off the hook either. If we're not careful, we forget these truths as well. Paul did not plan on being in Athens, right? Paul intended to wait for Timothy and Silas to join him and then move on. But as he was walking the streets and examining the buildings, as he watched the men and women of the city pursue upside-down lives, he was provoked. His heart was pricked. God was being robbed of the glory that he deserved, and worship was being given to idols made of temporary materials, fashioned after the likeness of men. He could not resist, but to share truth. He was not judgmental, right? we don't read that here. He was not hateful, nor was he tempted to join in the debauchery. He was stirred to proclaim the truth out of love for God and love for the people of the city. So the question I, I, I just thought of when I was reading this for myself, and I wanna ask you is what effect does walking around an upside down world have on you? Do you know enough about this world, like Paul, to use cultural poems and songs that give glimpses of truth but then springboard to the gospel? Or are you pursuing the world, making the truths of Scripture more difficult to discern because you yourself are often hanging upside down? What's your response as you walk around the Athens of your workplace today or your home or or the Athens of your Twitter feed is your nose in the sky praising God that you're not like them? Is your heart filled with hate and disdain for the world that God created for his glory? Or are you constantly on the edge of giving in to the upside down, doing somersaults, dizzying yourself from joining the world in its upside down ways, yet by the grace of God you kind of pop back up on your feet just to jump back into the somersault again. This is not what God has for you, Christian. This is not what God has for us. Paul, with the Athenian audience and atmosphere in mind, begins to preach about Jesus and the resurrection. Some pass him off as kind of a swindler. That's what these words mean, like a babbler of stolen thoughts. Somebody here trying to preach a new religion and maybe get a little money to get heard. But others heard something new and desired to hear more. So they brought him to the Areopagus and asked in verse 19, they said, maybe know what this new thing is that you are presenting? For you bring something strange to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So before we move on to the sermon, let's get the setting right. Paul is surrounded by people who have picked up on realities about God and life, but instead of worshiping him, they've worshiped lesser things, right? Right? This is Romans 1 on display. Like, if you want a chance to kind of understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, this is where you can go to get a picture of that. The world had revealed to them that there was something worthy of praise, there was something bigger than themselves worth pursuing. Instead of seeking God for the good, or instead of seeking the God at the center of those realities, however, they formed their own conclusions, attributed those conclusions to false gods who are. Most, mostly just like us, just with kind of like magical powers, kind of like an Avenger, right? Like looks like a human, but can jump real high. And we're therefore given over to pursue whatever they wanted. Religion over time has justified terrible actions and practices in the pursuit of serving man-made gods. Christianity is really no, no exception to that. If we lose track of Jesus, of the God of the Bible and begin to serve gods that we create in our own minds, we've done terrible things. There's no, no different in Athens. Their appetite for knowledge and hearing new things set the stage for Paul's sermon, which brings us to the second heading, right? The sermon. And so I know we've already read it, but guys, this is, I could have just come up here and read this and walk off the stage. This is such a good sermon from Paul. So let me read it, because this is going to set up our next two points, the sermon and the summons. So this, let's hear it again. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. It's just an explosion of truth. There's so much in here. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man. I love that. It's one of of my favorite verses. I mentioned a moment ago that Paul was strategic in how he shared, and I believe that to be true, honestly. He took in the world around him. He took in the city. He understood his audience. He used Greek poetry and the like, but all of that knowledge of the world around him was used to point to the knowledge that was lacking, right? So all the knowledge that he was learning about the world was not, was not for learning about the world. All of that knowledge was used to point to the lo- knowledge that was lacking. This passage is often used to point to the need for strategic evangelism um, or for good apologetics, right? For having a reason at all times for the hope that you have. And I don't really think that any of those are a misuse of this text, honestly. But if you miss the heart of the sermon, then you miss Paul's strategy. Paul's strategy was not the Greek culture. It was the gospel. Paul springboards off of culture to expose the fundamental problem in Athens and the world at large. And that problem was that we do not know God. We don't know him. From conception, we have rejected him and sin has blinded us to his reality. We've groped in the dark for truth and have found only fragments of his glory that we have built up into idols that we serve daily for some semblance of hope and peace. Paul used culture and knowledge of philosophy and poetry only as baseballs, right? Only as something you can use and hold, but, but not as the game itself. The Athenians, they didn't have a clue who God was don't know what he's like or how he acts what he requires and so on all of this because sin had warped their understanding of the world and of themselves and Paul could have focused on temples he could have focused on idols their desire to hear new things and remain in old ways but he understood that all of those things are just symptoms of not knowing God all things to all people does not mean different gospels for all people It means one gospel shared well with all kinds of people. See the gospel, it never changes. It doesn't adapt, it doesn't bend or swerve. We do and we should. We should make it so that the the message, the pure message is easy for the people around us to hear. Use what's around you to share as long as the message lands squarely on the God of the universe, the sin of man and the resurrected Jesus. It's tempting to think that Paul uh, was an expert, right, in culture. And that's why he could preach like he did. Paul just, he just knew everything about everywhere he was going. Honestly, Paul was brilliant. He was a smart person. And he knew a lot about culture, but he was an expert in the gospel. He was an expert in what was true. Amen? Is that what that was? Amen. Okay. He knew a few Greek poems, right? saw an altar to a God with no name, and he went on to share with them the name above all names. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, his expertise on what people need made it easy to break into the Greek culture with the solution of the gospel. Here's another question. So early in Acts, we see the same message preached, but to a Jewish audience. It doesn't change, right? Because the Jews also did not know God. Because when he was standing right in front of them, they crucified him instead of worshiping him. They did not recognize his character. They didn't know what he was like. So when they saw God and he did not fit their taste, they killed him and erected idols in his place. When they cried out to Peter at the end of his sermon, what must we do to be saved? The answer was the same. You need to repent and believe in the one that you crucified, the resurrected Jesus. You don't know God, is what Peter said, but he has made himself known. Same problem. Same gospel, same solution. We, in and of ourselves, because of sin, we don't know God. And here's the question. Do you feel like you have that clarity in your life? Do you know what every person on earth needs? It's funny, because when you ask a question like that, there's lots of different responses. Some of you start thinking about all of the problems going on in the world. All of the disorders you've seen, all of the injustice you've seen, all of the abuse that you've seen... And you start thinking it through and it's overwhelming, right? Some of you just realized other people had needs for the first time. So good, that's good. I'm glad I could help you with that today. But the problem of this world, they're nuanced in many, but the greatest need of man is not nuanced. It's not many, it's one. There's one need. I'm about to make an oversimplified statement, but please stick with me, okay? This has helped me a lot in my life. The Holy Spirit is actively always doing two things. Okay, he draws people to repentance and faith in Christ. And two, he makes people like Jesus. If someone in your life does not know Christ, then you know what they need. You know what God wants to do in the sense that he is always seeking and saving the lost. He always is. If you are in Christ, if you have repented of sin and placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus on the cross, then you know what God wants you to do. You know what he is asking and requiring and hoping for you. You know what you need. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to put your flesh to death allow Christ to be resurrected in that place. Plain and simple. And even though these categories are are a bit oversimplistic, they have really helped me in my life as both a Christian and and as a minister. They remind me that I can know what God is doing based on his word. Though I might not know all of the answers to all of the problems I encounter, I don't have all of the solutions for all of the issues I see in the world, I can be certain that God wants to save and God wants to sanctify. It's what he does. To be honest, this clarity has brought both peace in my life and has increased my faith and dependence on God. Athens had many needs, but their greatest need was to repent of their old ways, their old solutions, and turn to the God who made them for rest for their souls. They needed to know God. Jesus put it like this in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This in scripture is not presented as just an intellectual exercise, right? It's not like knowing enough Jesus facts gets you into Jesus land. Right, at the end of your life. You've you've driven there and you have the ticket and you know enough, so you get in. This is intimacy. Right? This is like a husband knowing a wife or a father knowing his son. God wants to, he he already knows you, and he wants you to know him. This is the eternal problem that I alluded to earlier in the sermon. Baseball won't last forever, neither will Pokemon. I know some of you get really sad about that. But this is why the worship of pleasure or discipline, or sexual identity, or status, or race, or country is so dangerous. Eternal life with God is contingent on knowing rightly who God is, through Jesus, whom God sent to glorify himself, to die for sins, and to clarify our greatest need, which is him. All of the idols in the world that are erected minimize this truth. So what is it that Paul says that we need to know? Let's move on uh, to our final point, The summons. Paul calls us to clarify uh, to clarity and true knowledge in his sermon. He, uh, the first point he gives us clarity on is this: God owns you and he cares for you, not the other way around. God owns you and he cares for you not the other way around. Verses 24 and 25 make that clear. He made the world. He made everything in it. He is Lord over all he made. He has no need for us to build him houses or give him food. Actually, we're dependent on him for everything, down to the breath that's in our lungs now. Right? The scriptures say that you are breathing right now because God is allowing you to. He is self-sufficient like we profess together. He's self-reliant, completely other, outside of us. He doesn't act like us or think like us, yet he sustains our lives. What love. Like What a kind reality and a kind God who sustains us and gives us life and breath and everything. It's funny because when, when they heard this, I know they must have been thinking, isn't he a Jew? Didn't they build him a temple? Didn't he just said that he doesn't need temples? This guy's a fool. But if you remember, why did God have the Jewish nation build a temple in the first place? We ruined the garden, the first temple, where God wanted to be with us. God made a world for us. We didn't make the world to kind of invite God down. So God gave us the tabernacle. So God could be with us. We didn't build a tabernacle to try to trap him like a Pokemon, right? The next is the temple. Like, this, is just so many chapters. I just read Leviticus a few months ago. So many chapters detailing these truths about how long it is and how wide it is and how many things are supposed to be in it. But the thing is, the Jewish temple was never an attempt of Jews to capture God. It was God attempting to be with people. Right? It wasn't Jews moving towards him because they weren't even a nation until he made them. It was God choosing to move towards us. And that's what Paul is saying. God doesn't live in temples made by man. He doesn't need them. He himself gives to everyone life and breath and everything. What kindness. Even the Old Testament prophets. Listen to Isaiah just trying to grasp this God. He says this in in chapter 64, verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Micah said this in, in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Even the Old Testament prophets were just baffled. As God revealed more of himself, he's like, you're unlike any other God the world has ever known. You serve us? You come to us? You love us? You care about us? Us doesn't make sense in the world's economy. It doesn't. So that was the first thing. Here's the second thing. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and you are not. Verse 26 and 27, he states that he made every man that has ever existed and has fixed their existence in space and time to his liking. You are here or listening even on Zoom today because the sovereign Lord of the universe said so. I know. I don't say that because it's like, yeah, so listen up to me, right? Like you're here because of me. No, I don't say that to highlight what I'm talking about, but to highlight the fact that God has created you to seek him and to know him. And if you are here today, he's working on you. He really is. If you're a Christian, he wants to love you, comfort you and purify you into the image of his son. And if you're not, he wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. Which brings us to our third point under this heading, the summons. God made you in his image and calls you to repent. You cannot save yourself. Human attempts to save ourselves will always fail. Human attempts attempts to satisfy ourselves have failed, amen? Like Paul says in verse 27, the days of groping around and grasping for things. Those days are over. We are no longer ignorant to truth because Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life has come into the world and has revealed truth to us. God has been patient and long-suffering, but he has also fixed a day that he will judge the world based on the righteousness of Christ. I don't say this as a scare tactic. I say this as a fact that has been fixed by the God who created you. My intention is not to manipulate, especially if you're in here and you don't trust Jesus. It's not to manipulate you into scaring you into thinking like, oh, you better trust him today because you don't know what tomorrow brings. But honestly, if you're here, trust him today. You don't know what the tomorrow brings. I, I say these things to elevate the love and kindness of God who has made a way for you to hear the gospel today. What generosity. What goodness. He's not far from you, the scripture says. He's near, he occupies every corner of existence and he loves you. In faith, trust in the resurrected Christ and God will save you even now. In verse 29, Paul exposes the futility of trying to create gods out of the materials of this world. We imagine what God is like, we build our idols to serve us. This process often starts You've heard me probably say this before with statements like if I was God or why would God or how could a loving God and so on. We imagine in our fallen state what we would do if we had magic powers. We dream of our most noble selves and attach the ability to heal sickness or cure loneliness or satisfy appetites to that self. And then we lament on why God is not that way sounds ridiculous, but that is why Paul reminds us that we're just a copy. We're the offspring. We're not the original. We don't own the world. We didn't create it. We don't, we don't choose and set things in space and time. We need to repent from our worldly thinking and put our mind on the mind of Christ who is fully God and fully man, right? These are things we should know. Paul is helping them know what is truth. The people at Athens wanted to know. We as Christians should know these things. He is fully God and fully man. He gave up his status in heaven to come to earth to die for the sins of an already condemned world. Then God raised him from the dead because he was sinless. Death had no hold or claim on him. Assuring, like it says in verse 30, that he is who he says he is. He has done what he said he would do, and he can raise us from the dead as well, if we repent and believe in the resurrected Christ. The section at the end of Acts ends as you might expect. Most people mock and reject Paul and his teaching. Some believe four or five men and women heard something new that caused them to place their faith in the resurrected Jesus. No other God has ever acted like this, they thought. No other God has been patient and long-suffering. No other God has sent himself as a sacrifice. No other God had loved them the way the God of the Bible had loved them. These new teachings had tickled their ears, right? It, it kind of made them think, what, what could be here? Is there something here? They asked for more, and they got a whole lot more than what they expected, They got new life. They got new ears, new minds, new hearts, a whole new reality, a whole new context to view the world. Paul knew this is what they needed, so he preached boldly, knowing God desires to seek and to save the lost. Do you know this to be true? Do you know these things? Is your heart and mind filled with the assurance Christ has purchased you through his resurrection? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Are you an expert in it? Do you have clarity that produces assurance for your own salvation and assurance about what the world around you genuinely needs? The men and women in Athens did not know these things, and the men and women of our world today don't either. They don't know it. Most of the people at Athens, like I said, mocked for his teaching, and I'll close with this. They called him a babbler, right, an accuser, uh, someone who's just trying to stir things up and gain a little money, gain a little uh, short-lived fame. They mocked the idea of a God who cares. They mocked the idea of a God who can raise man from the dead. The responses are no different today. It's always been costly to share the gospel. It's always been costly to trust the gospel. But in the end, some are saved. Some hear something in the gospel that speaks to the deepest parts of their souls and they believe. We as Christians cannot force anyone to believe, but we can know what is true about God. We can know what is true about man know what is true about Christ, and we can give those truths away freely, freely knowing that God desires to save and God desires to sanctify. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for being a God who knows us. We thank you for being a God who is not far from us. We thank you for being a God who does not live in temples made by man. We thank you for a God that doesn't just give us cheap solutions to our huge problems but you gave us a costly solution your son father we want to know you in the power of your resurrection we want to know you according to your word We want to know ourselves according to those truths father we in so many ways have picked up pieces we've picked up fragments and we've sought to build temples of worship we sought to satisfy our souls and we come up lacking every time Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would continue to use it to mold us into the likeness of your son. We thank you for the clarity that it gives your people. Father, we love you. We magnify your name. And it's in the name of Christ we pray these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this
1: sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.